This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The electrician was going to do some repair work. He went up to above the garage where there's a small cottage above the garage. And when he looked inside, he saw a man lying on the floor. It was obvious this man is dead from a shotgun wound to the head. That man was Kurt Cobain, lead singer and guitarist of Nirvana. Although his death on April 5th, 1994, was officially ruled a suicide, the curious circumstances surrounding it have been a frequent topic of debate and controversy. Did he actually kill himself? Or did someone else just make it seem like he did? And if so, why? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today, we're talking about the death of Kurt Cobain, who died from a fatal shotgun wound to the head in his Seattle home on April 5th, 1994. It seemed clear that Kurt had committed suicide. Or at least that's the official version. But before we dive into the conspiracy theories surrounding Kurt's death, first, let's talk a little bit more about his life. Born in 1967, Kurt Cobain grew up in a small logging town called Aberdeen in Washington State. 
and energetic and creative kid. He took art and music lessons at an early age, but things weren't exactly idyllic. He came to describe his hometown as redneck hell, where he was relentlessly bullied. Things only got worse after his parents divorced in 1976, when Kurt was nine years old. One week after Kurt's ninth birthday, on March 1, 1976, Kurt's father, Don, moved out. Don received visitation rights while Kurt's mother, Wendy, was granted full custody of Kurt and his younger sister, Kimberly. The divorce had a profound effect on Kurt, and his mother later recalled noticing a stark difference in his personality afterward. She told Rolling Stone magazine in 1992, quote, it just destroyed his life. He changed completely. I think he was ashamed, and he became very inward. He just held everything. He became real shy, end quote. Not long after Don moved out, Wendy's new boyfriend moved in. He was a mean and abusive man who beat Wendy. In turn, Kurt became even more defiant and started getting into trouble. Overwhelmed by Kurt's worsening behavior, Wendy sent him to live with Don Cobain only three months after Don had moved out. Kurt enjoyed living with his father at first. The two went camping every weekend and spent a lot of time bonding together. But shortly before Kurt's 11th birthday, Don broke the news that he was planning to remarry. Suddenly, Don's attention was divided. Kurt resented how much attention his new family was receiving and began tormenting his new step-siblings. In one instance, Kurt stayed home while the rest of the family went out shopping. When they returned, they discovered Kurt had cut off the head of his stepsister's doll. Don was desperate to make Kurt feel included in his new family. On June 14, 1979, when Kurt was 12 years old, Don filed a court petition to gain full custody of his son. Although Kurt had been living with his father for a few years, technically, his mother still had full custody. Kurt didn't appreciate the gesture. He made it clear he did not consider his stepfamily to be his real family. He started spending more time with a group of older kids at school, smoking pot, and getting into trouble. Unable to control Kurt any longer, Don tried sending his son back to live with Wendy, but she refused. Instead, Kurt was sent to live with various friends and family members. He continued to shuttle back and forth between relatives for the rest of his adolescence, with periodic returns to his father's home before being kicked out again. One of the relatives Kurt lived with during this time was his Uncle Chuck, a musician. On Kurt's 14th birthday, Uncle Chuck asked him to choose between a bicycle and a guitar. You can probably guess what Kurt picked. Kurt began playing the guitar first covering popular songs by bands like Queen and The Cars, then later experimenting with making his own music. Kurt's uncle was so impressed by his passion for guitar that he asked a friend to give Kurt lessons. Around this time, when he was 15, Kurt began hanging out with members of a band called the Melvins, who introduced him to the local punk scene. The anger and rebellion of punk immediately resonated with Kurt, and he began looking at music from a completely new perspective. Kurt and two friends decided it was time to start their own band, which they named Fecal Matter. The group recorded a demo tape and handed it out to fellow fans of the Melvins. One of those fans was Chris Novoselic. The demo tape impressed Chris and the two started playing music together. In 1987, when Kurt was 20, 
he and Chris formed what would eventually come to be known as the band Nirvana. The rest, as they say, is history. Cut to the fall of 1991. Nirvana released their second album, Nevermind. Although it initially received very little coverage, the popularity of its single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, eventually catapulted the band, and grunge music in general, into the mainstream. Nirvana had received quite a bit of attention for their first album, Bleach, but it paled in comparison to the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Kurt notoriously struggled to reconcile this newfound popularity with his anti-establishment punk roots and resented the way he was often misunderstood and misrepresented by fans and the media. In one particularly horrific case, two self-proclaimed fans raped a girl while singing one of Nirvana's songs, Polly. Kurt had taken his inspiration for the song from a true story about the abduction and rape of a 14-year-old girl who managed to escape her captor. He intended it to be a tribute to her strength, not a glorification of sexual violence. Realizing people had been inspired to do something so heinous because of the song deeply disturbed Kurt, who spoke out about how much it angered him. A lot of people point to incidents like this and Kurt's general inability to accept Nirvana's mainstream appeal as reasons for taking his own life. The note found near his body, his alleged suicide note, seems to affirm this theory, but we'll discuss this later. Right before Nirvana recorded Nevermind, Kurt began dating Courtney Love, the lead singer of another rock band, Hole. Their relationship was tumultuous, to say the least, and rife with drug use. Quote, we bonded over pharmaceuticals, Courtney said later of their initial meeting. But there was no denying Kurt's love for Courtney. He called her outspoken and charismatic, saying she was, quote, like a magnet for exciting things to happen and the coolest girl in the world. Not everyone felt the same way, however. Courtney was not shy about her love of the spotlight and her quest to become a famous rock star, saying, quote, I just made myself think I will not covet what the boys have. I'll just create it myself. The media frequently accused her of being an opportunist who was riding Kurt's coattails into the spotlight. Kurt, for one, made it clear he found rumors that Courtney was manipulating him for her own gain to be completely offensive and inaccurate. Courtney was also rumored to have been the one to introduce Kurt to heroin. Regardless of whether that is true, the devastating impact the drug had on their relationship and Kurt's eventual demise is undeniable. Both Kurt and Courtney used heroin heavily throughout the course of their relationship. Kurt claimed it was the only way he could find relief from his chronic stomach pain, which had plagued him for years. By January of 1992, their heroin use had gotten especially bad. In one case, while waiting to perform on Saturday Night Live, Kurt was so visibly strung out backstage that his bandmates worried he wouldn't be able to perform. Miraculously, he pulled through, but his performance was lifeless and he nearly collapsed after walking off stage. Then, a few weeks after the Saturday Night Live appearance, Courtney found out she was pregnant. The couple quickly decided to get married, but not before Courtney insisted on having Kurt sign a prenup. 
Courtney was convinced she would become more famous than Kurt, joking that she didn't want him running away with all her money. Kurt and Courtney exchanged vows in a small ceremony in Hawaii on February 24, 1992, four days after Kurt's 25th birthday. Noticeably absent that day was Chris Novoselic, Kurt's close friend and bandmate. He refused to attend after Courtney declined to invite Chris's wife, Shelley, who was vocal about her dislike of Courtney. Shelley wasn't the only person to clash with Courtney, who seemed to possess an innate ability to get under people's skin. She even managed to upset Madonna. The increasing success of Hole's album, Pretty on the Inside, sparked a bidding war over who would sign the band, with Madonna being one of the first interested in signing them to Maverick, her record label at the time. However, Madonna ultimately backed down after Courtney recounted the confidential details of her offer to the press. Madonna also claimed Courtney talked incessantly about herself and how much better Hole was than Nirvana. Ironically, Courtney eventually signed with Geffen Records, Nirvana's label, but not before making sure her deal surpassed that of her husband. Before signing anything, Courtney insisted that Geffen show her Kurt's existing contract with the label. She wound up walking away with a million-dollar deal that was unquestionably more lucrative than his. Say what you will about Courtney, but there's no denying her business savvy. Definitely. She knew what she wanted, and she fought for it. But just as their careers were both starting to take off, Courtney let it slip in an interview with Vanity Fair that she and Kurt had used heroin in the months following the infamous SNL performance. Which meant the whole world now knew that Courtney had used heroin while pregnant. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now, back to conspiracy theories. The public was furious with Courtney. Her admission to using heroin while pregnant sparked a vicious backlash among fans worldwide, and Kurt fell into a deep depression. He attempted to numb the pain with more heroin, but as his heroin use intensified, so did the strain on his marriage with Courtney. In August of 1992, two weeks before her due date, Courtney checked into a hospital at the insistence of friends concerned for her well-being amid all the turmoil. Soon after, 
Kurt checked into a detox facility. Miraculously, Courtney gave birth to a healthy baby girl on August 18, 1992. They named her Frances Bean. But five days after Frances was born, Kurt and Courtney were in the news again. Someone had gotten hold of Courtney's hospital records and faxed them to the LA Times, revealing that Courtney had given birth while taking methadone, a heroin substitute used to treat narcotics addiction. It's standard practice for a heroin addict to be treated with methadone through a pregnancy and detox after, since the toll detoxing takes on the body could potentially harm the baby. The release of Courtney's medical records meant far worse than bad press for the Cobains. It meant the Los Angeles welfare authorities were now threatening to take custody of Francis. And they ultimately did. Welfare authorities placed Francis with other relatives. To have a shot at regaining custody, Kurt and Courtney needed to submit regular urine tests to prove their sobriety, as well as meet weekly with a social worker. In March of 1993, when Frances was nearly seven months old, she was finally returned to her parents. The custody scare really shook Kurt, and he was determined to stay clean and turn his life around in order to be a good father. But Kurt's stomach issues continued to persist, and soon he was back to using heroin as a means of coping with the pain. Just a few months after regaining custody of their daughter in 1993, Kurt overdosed. When Courtney found him convulsing upstairs after neglecting to come down for dinner, she shot him with buprenorphine, a drug used to combat an overdose. She then gave him a mix of Valium, Benadryl, and some codeine. Usually this combination was enough to bring Kurt out of it, but instead he vomited. His mother, who had been home to help out with Francis, called 911 in a panic. When the police arrived, they took him to a nearby hospital where he was treated and released. Not even two months later, the police were at the Cobain's door again, arresting him for domestic assault. When the cops arrived, Courtney told them Kurt pushed her after she threw juice in his face, and then he tried to choke her. They were arguing over a gun Kurt bought, a Colt AR-15. He bought it out of a growing fear of stalkers, but Courtney hated it and wanted it out of the house. The police ultimately confiscated three guns from the home, and Courtney decided against pressing charges. She chalked the whole thing up to a misunderstanding and was just happy the guns were finally gone. Things appeared to quiet down after that, or at least there were no more incidents involving the police. The following year, in early 1994, Nirvana embarked on a national tour followed by another in Europe. The band was also scheduled to perform later that year at Lollapalooza, an alternative music festival which was expected to bring in millions of dollars for the band. Kurt seemed to finally be off drugs and in better spirits thanks to a diagnosis that helped ease his chronic stomach pain. On paper, everything was going great. But Courtney claimed otherwise. According to her, Kurt was miserable on the European tour and would call her to say how much he hated it. While in Madrid, he called her crying about kids he saw using heroin in the audience. He never wanted to be seen as a junkie icon, and he was devastated. Then, with 23 dates still left in the tour, Kurt came down with severe bronchitis and lost his voice. He was instructed to rest for a few months, and the band rescheduled the remaining tour dates eventually canceling the rest of the tour entirely. The next day, March 2, 1994, 
Kurt flew to Rome, where Courtney met him along with Francis and a nanny. What happened next would become a crucial part of the conspiracy theories and speculation surrounding Kurt's death. After spending the day together as a family, Kurt and Courtney returned to their suite and sent Francis off with a nanny in a nearby room. Kurt called the front desk and asked to send someone out to fill a prescription in Courtney's name. The prescription was for a drug called Rohypnol, a powerful tranquilizer otherwise known as a roofie. Kurt also had two bottles of champagne sent to the room. According to Courtney, the next morning she woke up to find Kurt unconscious. Attempted suicide? Maybe. However, at the time, both Kurt and the doctor who treated him claimed it was not a suicide attempt. It was only later, after Kurt's death, that Courtney began to recall this event as undoubtedly a suicide attempt. Attempted suicide or not, it was clear that Kurt's time in Europe had worn on him. After returning to Seattle, he told Courtney he no longer wanted to perform at Lollapalooza. She was furious. She couldn't believe Kurt would turn down such a lucrative opportunity. But Nirvana pulled out of the festival anyway, citing Kurt's health issues as the reason. Canceling the Lollapalooza performance led fans to speculate about the possibility of Nirvana splitting up, and rumors about a possible divorce circulated among the Cobain's friends. Kurt was growing more and more reclusive and seemed to have lost interest in the music business entirely, and Courtney was at her wit's end. On March 18, 1994, shortly after returning to Seattle after Kurt's overdose in Rome, the police were at the Cobain's door once more. This time, Courtney had called them to say that Kurt had locked himself in a room with a gun and was threatening to kill himself. But when police knocked on the door, Kurt let them in and insisted he was not suicidal. So why would Courtney say that he was? Exactly what the police were wondering. When they questioned her, she admitted she had lied about him threatening suicide and said she had not seen him with a gun. She had called them because he would not open the door for her, and knowing that guns were in the room with him concerned her. I see. Despite Kurt's claims that he hadn't threatened to kill himself, the police confiscated two more guns from the home. Growing concern over Kurt's behavior led his record label, Geffen Records, to stage an intervention on March 25, 1994, a few days after the incident with police. His drug use was clearly out of hand again, and his team at Geffen feared he might not live much longer if he kept up his habit. During the intervention, Courtney threatened to prevent Kurt from seeing Francis if he refused to go through detox. He agreed to check in to the Exodus Recovery Center in Los Angeles, but not before buying a gun. On Friday, March 30th, right before leaving for rehab, Kurt and his best friend, Dylan Carlson, went to a gun shop in Seattle, where Dylan purchased a Remington 20-gauge shotgun for Kurt. When the cops have taken away five of your guns, probably wise not to register another one in your name. He bought this gun for the same reason he bought all the others, in case of stalkers or an intruder. He was a small guy without bodyguards, so it made sense he would want to protect himself and his family. It's important to note, after Kurt died, Dylan swore he never would have bought the gun had he thought his best friend was suicidal. That night, Kurt flew to Los Angeles and checked himself into Exodus Recovery. He stayed at the facility once in the past and hated it, checking himself out two days early. This time was no different. 
but he didn't leave until receiving a few visitors, including an unidentified woman. On April 1st, 1994, just a few short days after checking himself in, Kurt stepped out for a cigarette and proceeded to climb the six-foot fence surrounding Exodus. He immediately booked a cab to the airport and took the first direct flight to Seattle. He paid for the ticket with his credit card. Keep that detail in mind. He called Courtney, who was staying close by with Francis at the Peninsula Hotel in Los Angeles at 8.47 p.m. on the night of his flight home. He left her a message with a telephone number of someone named Elizabeth, whose identity remains a mystery to this day. That was all the message said. Courtney never heard Kurt's voice again. After Kurt landed in Seattle, his driver dropped him off at his home on Lake Washington Boulevard in the early hours on Saturday, April 2nd. With Courtney and Francis in L.A., the house was empty except for a live-in nanny named Michael DeWitt, who everyone called Callie. Callie later told police he was woken that morning around 6 a.m. by Kurt, who he found sitting on his bed. The two chatted briefly before Kurt left to go into town. That was the last time he was seen alive by anyone at the Lake Washington house. Over the next few days, several people spotted Kurt around town, including Nirvana's manager, John Silva. Many of those sightings included an unidentified woman. By this point, Courtney was concerned. Although she had been told Kurt left the rehab facility, she had not heard from him. She knew he had been at the Lake Washington house because Callie called to tell her. But that was the last she'd heard about his whereabouts. After discovering that his credit card was being used around Seattle, she decided to hire a private investigator to track him down. On April 3rd, Courtney called Tom Grant, a former detective with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, now working as a P.I., to help her track down Kurt. Courtney admitted to Detective Grant that she had filed a missing persons report pretending to be Kurt's mother. Interesting. Yeah. She also asked Detective Grant to set up surveillance at several locations, including any property the two owned. But remember that unidentified woman Kurt was allegedly seen with while he was missing? She was rumored to be a drug dealer named Caitlin, whom Courtney suspected of having an affair with Kurt. Courtney requested that Caitlin's home be put under surveillance as well. It sounds like Courtney may have had more on her mind than Kurt's credit card usage. It's definitely possible. According to Cobain's lawyer, Rosemary Carroll, the marriage was in trouble. During his investigation, Detective Grant learned that Kurt had recently requested that Mrs. Carroll remove Courtney from his will. Courtney, on the other hand, had asked Mrs. Carroll to find the meanest, most vicious divorce lawyer she could find. Mrs. Carroll did remove Courtney from Kurt's will, but the updated version was never signed rendering it useless. If Kurt died, Courtney would be entitled to everything. But if they divorced, like it sounded they might? Courtney would only get half at best. Don't forget about the prenup she insisted on before they were married. But a looming divorce doesn't necessarily mean there was foul play. It could have just been really bad timing. Still, there's no doubt certain details about Kurt's death and the months leading up to it are at least worthy of a second look. For instance, Courtney did not ask Detective Grant to check out the Lake Washington house. That's the house where Kurt ran into Callie, the nanny. She also neglected to mention how Callie had called her to tell her Kurt had been home. 
which is odd considering that was the last place she knew he had been seen. Once Courtney clued him in, Detective Grant made arrangements to check out the property with Kurt's best friend Dylan, the same friend who bought the gun for him before he left for rehab. On April 6, 1994, the two arrived at the Lake Washington house where Dylan showed Detective Grant around. There was no sign of Kurt. The next day, Courtney asked them to return to look for the shotgun. She said she thought it might be in her closet. So Dylan and Detective Grant returned to the Lake Washington house. It wasn't there, and neither was Kurt. But there was a note. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. And now, let's continue the story. The note found on April 7th was from the nanny, Callie. It was directed at Kurt. He chastised him for not calling Courtney and said he couldn't believe Kurt came back without telling him, which seems odd considering Callie previously told Courtney that he had spoken to Kurt at the Lake Washington home after he returned from rehab. Callie also mentioned in the note that Courtney had another accident and was in the hospital again. He was right. The day Callie's note was found, April 7th, Courtney was hospitalized after overdosing in her suite. Callie immediately flew to Los Angeles to provide care for Francis while Courtney was in the hospital. Back in Seattle, Dylan continued to show Detective Grant around Kurt's usual haunts, but there were no new leads. Following her overdose, Courtney was arrested for possession of a controlled substance, drug paraphernalia, a hypodermic syringe, and stolen property. The stolen property was a prescription pad, which Courtney's lawyer claimed was mistakenly left in the room by her doctor during an earlier visit. Her lawyer also insisted that she was not under the influence of heroin, nor had she overdosed. He claimed she simply had an allergic reaction to Xanax, a drug used for the treatment of anxiety disorders, and that the controlled substance wasn't narcotics, but rather, quote, Hindu good luck ashes, unquote. As for the syringe, well, he failed to explain that one. Courtney was released on bail that afternoon, April 7th, and immediately checked into the same rehab facility Kurt had escaped from six days earlier. The next morning, April 8, 1994, Detective Grant and Dylan were scheduled to look around a second property belonging to Kurt and Courtney in Carnation, an hour drive from their Lake Washington home. While they were en route to the Carnation estate to look for Kurt, an electrician arrived at the Lake Washington house where Callie's note had been found. He was scheduled to install some security equipment. 
While standing on the balcony outside of the room above the garage, he looked through a set of glass doors and noticed a man lying on the ground inside the room. At first, he thought it was a dummy, but then he noticed blood and a shotgun. He immediately called his boss, who, instead of alerting authorities, called a local radio station. The station thought it might be a hoax, but they ultimately called the police anyway. News quickly spread that a body was found at the Cobain residence. Meanwhile, as Detective Grant and Dylan made their way to the other property, they stopped for gas while Dylan made a quick phone call. When he returned to the car, he told Detective Grant that he heard a body had been found at the Lake Washington house. They immediately turned on the car radio. Within minutes, police confirmed that the body was Kurtz. It was said to have been found in the room above the garage. Dylan had never mentioned the room above the garage to Detective Grant, who asked Dylan why they didn't look in there when they went through the house looking for Kurt. Dylan said it was just a dirty little room where lumber was kept and claimed it hadn't occurred to him to look there. But later, he told police that he never knew it existed. Detective Grant called his office next. One of his associates informed him that someone had recently used Kurt's credit card. Either Kurt or someone else had spent $43 on flowers mere hours before his body was discovered. He didn't think this was particularly significant until later, after the coroner's report revealed Kurt had been dead for at least two days by the time his body was discovered on April 8, 1994. Yes. The first people to arrive on the scene were three Seattle police officers who found the room locked. Minutes later, the fire department arrived and broke through the window, sending shattered glass everywhere. A piece of paper was found inside a planting tray on the wall, which had some dirt and light bulbs in it. It was immediately deemed a suicide note. They found Kurt lying on his back with a shotgun resting between his legs with the barrel aimed at his head. His left hand was still wrapped around it. On the floor was Kurt's wallet, $120 in cash, and a cigar box filled with syringes, burnt spoons, cotton, and little pieces of what appeared to be black tar heroin. Noticeably missing from Kurt's wallet was the credit card that had been used to purchase flowers earlier that day. There was also a brown paper bag containing a box of 22 live 20-gauge shotgun shells. The box originally came with 25. One spent shell casing was found on top of a brown corduroy jacket resting on top of a shotgun case. The other two were still inside the gun. Inside the jacket pocket was a receipt for the shotgun made out to Dylan Carlson. The next people to arrive on the scene were three coroners from the medical examiner's office. One coroner took Polaroids of the scene and quickly came to the conclusion that Kurt had died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. The information quickly got out, and soon the world knew that Kurt Cobain was dead of an apparent suicide. But as more details came out about Kurt's death, some people questioned whether he might have been worth more to someone dead than alive. Like Courtney. She was in Los Angeles at the time of his death, as well as the days leading up to it. Had she hired someone to do the dirty work for her? Could it have been Callie, the nanny who was staying at the Lake Washington home when Kurt died? Or could it have been his own best friend, Dylan Carlson, who neglected to show Detective Grant the room above the garage where Kurt's body was found? Or maybe it was someone else entirely. 
There's only one conspiracy theory here. It's that Kurt Cobain was murdered. Next week, we'll discuss. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And don't forget to subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Let us know what your favorite theory is. Join us next week as we continue our second look at the death of Kurt Cobain. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Jordan Rousseau and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.